Welcome to Live with Greg or Live with Greg, depending on semantics. <laughs> All right, we're here with episode 62 of Live With Greg with my good friend, life coach, Mark Gwent. Mm-hmm. It's good to be here again. <laughs> yeah, this is our second one. Um, all right, so... What do you, as a white male in America bring to the table to support the erosion of racism, the healing of our racist system? Mm. Well, first thing is beginner's mind. Like being willing to just constantly reevaluate where I think I'm at versus the feedback I get. And then the second thing is I've been actively participating in an initiate initiation run by a school called the Remember Institute, a woman named Brig Feltus, Bridge Feltus. And she is a woman of color who has these initiation classes that they're six weeks for uh, people who identify as white to receive training in what it's like to take on the work of becoming anti-racist. And I was one of the original participants in the first run of the course. And then it's grown quite a bit. And this year, I played a role as what's called a SA, which means protector in Kemetic language, which would normally be we think of as Egypt. And my job was to be of service to the students that were in this round. And my original class was like 12, and the current classes are up to 55. And that run that I was the SAW captain, where I was responsible for all the other SAW, which is the plural of SAW, I was holding space for those people that were holding space for the students. And that was just ended three weeks ago. And today I got my new cohort as a new group of students for this round of it. It's called Heal Thyself. And we're, she's on class number 10. And in that course, I've learned how to understand my white privilege, how to understand what structural racism is, how to be quiet in spaces where BIPOC people, you know, black, indigenous people of color are having discussions about anti-racism and activism. Uh, how to presence myself in other social situations like social media that is supportive of and not dismissive or dis- destructive. Um, that's not the word I want. Um, disintegrating of voices of people of color. And as a white person, I take on the labor of having the tough conversations with other people that identify as white and um, I do other things that we could talk about, but it just would sound like a laundry maybe list. Maybe we will. <laughs> yeah. If I started making a laundry list, it would just sound like I was making more of myself. And I think that's the piece that's most important is humble courage and beginner's mind. 
What's a recent experience you've had that called upon your courage to be in support of anti-racism? Mm. Well, we don't strive for perfection in this course. We recognize that perfection... Perfection. Are you giving me a footnote? No, I'm just saying. <laughs> Before I tell you what it was, here's the footnote. <laughs> well, the idea of, of perfect imperfection, right, the paradox of accepting that we're going to make mistakes, means that then you have more courage to, to step into action, right? Yeah, but I'm wondering a specific experience. Okay. There was a woman in the course who has a disability. So we actually also work with ableism in this course. And as her protector in my cohort, she was having trouble and I wasn't aware of her disability. And my job is to sort of hold people accountable and support them. So don't let them kind of wiggle away or make excuses or to not do the work. And she was coming in with um, challenges around her cognitive ability to read through the volume of the material. And so I was holding the challenge out for her. And then it became, I became aware that she was um, not able to perform at that level and she needed support there. And that she was going to exit the course because of my behavior. And I had to own that with her, restore integrity in the sense of saying, I recognize the impact to her. I want to communicate to her my my regret about that and take responsibility for how it impacted her. And then also try to recreate some form of connection between us because she's was just moving to the next course. So she's going to be in this one or the one in, that starts in January and I'm going to be in the same field with her again and I have to be more mindful. And so as the SAO captain, the leader of the support team, I had to publicly show my flaw to everyone and not try to make excuses about it or position it as uh oh i'm you know i'm not so bad or or go the other route which is to be feel guilty and make points about feeling guilty and how that sort of alleviates me by creating kind of an emotional out as spirit as an emotional bypass really so i really just had to hang the truth out there of my failure and then own it in a public way and then also in front of my teacher whom i you know i tend to want to please and then be courageous about the impact that that would have to her work and to this person who I didn't see fully when I was interacting with them. Short version, admit a public mistake. <laughs> <laughs> no, here's what, okay, there's a couple of things. Well, I want to make sure I don't forget this one element. But um, were you able to meet her and is she proceeding to the next course? Well, meet in the sense of vi virtually, right? Cause right, of COVID. that's what I mean. I mean I'm talking well, about we had, like we had individual chats in the chat that's part of the course. We had um, an exchange of ideas where by me being willing to take full responsibility for the impact to her, that allowed her more space to not feel so um, challenged and 
ostracized or you know let down however you want to term it and then she then said some things to me that had her which were i would call admissions about her own communication style that were in effect her saying well this was where i had some responsibility in what happened and um what would be energetically kind of like letting me off the hook, kind of reassuring me? Well, it does sound like a part of a successful mending of, as you say, uh, you know, our foible, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, you're coming too hard for what she could handle given her immediate circumstances, and you were unaware of them. But a part of that healing is both people... Um, taking responsibility for what occurred. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, here's here's what I played in that. Here was my piece. I could have let you know that I was in this situation before. Or I could have seen that I was putting too much pressure. And the key part being both of you taking responsibility for what occurred. And that's part of the real healing. Yeah. And as part of that closing dialogue, she talked about how there were other issues that had her desire to not be in the course because of the workload. So that it wasn't just her disability. There was She actually had an active desire not to have to take it on the work. And one of the things that's true is this isn't just a diversity training. Like, it's not anti-racism light. It's we're going to get in there and we're going to really mess with your innards and it's really uncomfortable work. Really uncomfortable. So one of the things you said that is uh, that ability to sidestep the situation by taking a stance of enormous guilt. Yeah. That one's good. So, that was one of the things I learned in the course from the teacher. From yeah, that's a good triggering thing because I think there's an overall thought of white people should feel guilty. Like, I should feel guilty because I've become aware of our history and I'm white. And what I'm hearing from you is that's a simplistic manner that doesn't really address the now of our situation. Well, it puts the attention back on you and takes the attention off what we need to shift. So it becomes a form of spiritual bypass by focusing on the guilt. It doesn't mean you shouldn't feel it or that it isn't legitimate to have that emotional response. But emotional sobriety is being able to recognize it and then have the next thing happen as opposed to everything stopping with I feel guilty and therefore I'm out or I need to move into some sort of posture. It's another way of like pulling for the person of color in the room to then do something about that guilt, which actually has you get off the hook uh, about your responsibility in a structurally racist. So it seems to me that the next step after that feeling of guilt is then the willingness to sit in this hot seat, in essence, to 
like the guilt is a premonition of here comes the fire and part of the white responsibility is to sit in the fire and listen well guilt becomes a pivot point for denial and one of the ways it works is typically in in discussions that I've been part of is a person will say I wasn't there Slavery isn't part of my experience, and therefore I shouldn't feel guilty about something I had nothing to do with. So the answer, the truth of that is that's correct. You shouldn't feel guilty for something you haven't actually taken action to actively support or engage with. Guilt doesn't do anything to shift what's occurring today still the forms of racism that are still here so if you get caught up in the guilt and then the pivot point of denying your culpability with the past and then therefore i'm done or getting stuck in the guilt and becoming immobilized and you know pulling for what people want which is this kind of forgiveness rescue Right. They want to be rescued from their feelings about it. And they typically want a person of color to alleviate that guilt with them. And so then, again, the tension goes back on to the white person or the person who identifies as white to feel better, which isn't necessarily the thing. That discomfort that we create guilt out of or that we attach to the idea of guilt can actually be transformed into motivation for action. Is there a place right now in your experience for humor? For me, sure. Like, uh, one of the things that's becoming clear to me is that as we as white people do the work together, there's a way for us to utilize levity to inspire and enliven the way we act towards moving things forward, right? Ridicule is often a form of humor. Like we often have humor at someone else's expense. And so in that area, it gets a little problematic, right? Like, you know, it's still problematic in the comedic world to have racist views or ableist views or, you know, other types of sexist views. And rightly so. We're trying to evolve all of ourselves, Right. So what's funny with regards to these problematic, racist, ableist, you know, issues in our culture is getting redefined as well. So being of good humor, being able to take levity and add it to the mix has this kind of empowerment potential, this a potential to release people from the guilt and the shame and the bogging down of their energy in that. And then, okay, you know, what can we do next? I mean, it's a bit of a stretch to say anti-racism work can be fun, but I am not opposed to that because anything that's in service of that, Mm -hmm. of that goal, should absolutely be brought forward. And the idea here is not to create more oppression. All right, here's the trick. Because it seems like a baseline is we're all going for joy. Ultimately, that's like a simple cornerstone for humanity to look upon. Like, is your joy impeded? Well, how can we heal that? How can we all be in a place of joy? 
And that brings to mind The Vow, which you and I have both watched. And one of his consistent <laughs> sound bites was, you know, it's about joy. What we're doing is about joy. So when you say his, do you mean Keith, the Keith, leader? I couldn't remember his He's name. the leader yeah, of, the, of Nexium. Right, right, right. Right. Well, so contextually in this conversation, one of the things that's true about the vow is there's no people of color in that. There's a couple, but boy, it's rare. Right. <laughs> so there's that, this yeah. privilege right. that goes with joy. And then there's this thing that is uh, hermetic, right? It's based on the hermetic principles, which is there's we're we're all in it together. We're part of the all. We aren't separate. So the context of can I be happy when others are suffering? That's an important question to integrate. Am I capable of joy in the pure sense of joy when others are being oppressed? And I think when you think of it in terms of the now, each now, everything is completely available. Every vibration, humor, sadness, guilt, they're all available in the now, whatever's presently occurring in the process. So, yeah, why not be joyful when it shows up, right? Celebrating the empowerment and the disintegration of the pieces that we're disintegrating in, you know, American culture that are racist. And there's a term that I got in the seventies called being a bliss ninny. And it's essentially a kind of unconscious joy, which is disconnected from the reality of what's happening. So if someone's suffering, as long as one person isn't free, then I'm not really free. So joy is a transitory experience. It's a temporary experience, as long as you're awake. But I've heard, uh, well, I didn't, well, I did, anyway, <laughs> semantics. Um, B- Bishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama wrote a book on joy. One of the elements they spoke of is an overall happiness that isn't, attached to our physical realm. It's just, it is. And that's what they both had or have um, a knowledge of. Obviously, both have witnessed, experienced extreme suffering. What I got from this book was that there is still a sense of joy they have in the midst of suffering. Yeah. That seems like a really good healing factor as we deal with racism to be able to be in touch with joy Mm -hmm. in a profound sadness, a profound horror at times. Well, being present to whatever the moment is providing. But I'm wondering about the responsibility we have in the what's being provided in that moment. Yeah. Like, I think we do have a responsibility. I have a responsibility for my joy, my sorrow. Not that I have. I am responsible for my joy, my sorrow. So the moment isn't providing 
I'm choosing what I'm feeling in the moment. Well, actually, context and choice, context and individual interaction, they're both available in the moment. So, for instance, if you're laughing at a lynching, your joy is misplaced. Right. In terms of the suffering, right? And to me, that's a sign of that individual is in an unnatural state. There's, It's not just, you know what I mean? Like, they are not, not in a natural state. That's a sign that they need healing. Sure, absolutely. I can totally can, agree with that. Yeah. And I think, circling back to an earlier part of the premise here, is that is the work of dismantling institutional racism and breaking down 500 years of oppression a joyless prospect? No. But you have to have emotional sobriety at all times. So that what I just described was a scenario where the person we're talking about, the hypothetical person who's laughing at a lynching, is completely disconnected from his sobriety at that point. So there's moments when people who are engaged in the work of anti-racism can feel joy and levity and, and feel that happiness and then also feel the, the, the sadness and the bitterness and the cruelty. And I think there's a, a relationship to privilege, economic privilege, which typically also follows to some degree privilege of color and the ability to access joy. Like in, in genetic lineage, in, is we transfer stuff to from generation to generation. And so there's literally is a embodied sensation of oppression in oppressed peoples that comes down from generation to generation. In each lifetime, we have an opportunity to work with it, to do our best to transmute it. Right. And so as long as we break down the way that the expression of that oppression is being brought into the moment, we're creating more room. But for someone who's witnessed their son being murdered in cold blood by an officer of the law, the potential for joy in that life has been significantly impacted. And the, the, the sensation of sorrow is going to be have tend to have legs, is like we say in the movie industry. There's a tendency for long. And so just like that, there's all kinds of generational trauma that's encoded into you know, people of color's DNA. And that's true for indigenous cultures as well. So it's like we have a certain privilege in our background as people who identify as white that allows us greater access to joy simply because it's not passed down to us traumatically in our bodies and in, in through our genetic structure. So we have more access to it, both from our economic privilege, our societal privilege, and then the privilege of being, you know, having roots that go back to Europe. I'm having trouble believing that an infant born is coded already with um, sorrow and generations of oppression in the DNA. Okay. 
do you know if there's scientific data to support that? I'm not able to quote it. I don't have access to that. I think as a premise, as a theory for the second for a moment, we could talk about finding that and anybody who's watching that could, you know, look that up and and do some research about it and and find out. What I think is real is we are in a racist society. And that infant, the moment it is born, in fact, the moment it's conceived, all of that, it's developing and growing in a racist society. And that environment has an impact on it immediately. So one piece of evidence that is environmental and not purely genetic is the level of cortisol and fear that the mom experiences in the day-to-day Right. passage of life that gets transmitted through, right? right? So there's that piece, which we would call environmental, which if we're going to do the science would not be purely genetic. It would be environmental. But I am interested in knowing, and it seems very logical that that cortisol does have a biological impact on the fetus. Sure. So what I'm the premise here is that right. we so that, would disprove the genetic linkage because it's evidentially vi- environmental from mm-hmm. like the get-go. Right. So, but that does seem. Well, I have my hypothesis, and what you and I are in agreement with, and I think anyone with any sense is, the United States is a racist system and has been since day one. Well, yeah, we can talk about how it's just built into the Constitution, but right. I think where we put, where I put my emphasis in the education that I'm receiving is in the economics. Because I actually have a kind of hopefulness, and um, there's some things that are in the spirit of the Constitution that can be evolved to the modern context to... For instance, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident right. that all beings Life, are, liberty and the are, death, are right. free right. as a part of their birth legacy. Right. But it says men in the Constitution, right. and that's like problematic on so many levels. Right. right. And then there's the Citizen Act, which said you have to be white. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of well, very then, clear evidence. Well, and then at the end of the Civil War... There's this thing where supposedly black people are liberated, but there's this law that says if they're put in a jail, then they can be put to work without having to be paid. So there's this institutionalization of forced labor, which then becomes codified into Jim Crow and all these things. So the, the way we're told the history of the United States is kind of like a fairy tale. And once you start to become more educated and have access to the structural elements uh, that are inherent in racism, the racism that's structurally inherent in our culture, then you start to see where where the soft spots are in the structure that can be broken down. I think one of the most important pieces of breaking it all down 
is, well, what's going to be left? What's the opportunity in doing the work? And that's where it gets really difficult for people who feel guilty, is they don't feel a sense of hopefulness about why they should go through the labor. And what I found in my own journey is this idea that, you know what, there is this idea of self-determination, freedom of religion, free enterprise, where individuals are, are able to evoke the, the gifts that they brought into this life and then use that as the basis for their trade and the way they work things out. And I think that we have the possibility of creating this new hybridized idea around what is in the spirit of 1776 but wasn't expressed in the codification of it because it was mostly white landowners and not free people, per se, that, code, that encoded that document. So there's an unfulfilled promise in American democracy. And then there's inherent structural oppression in capitalism. And it gets dicey because if you're, say, a conservative and someone like me is talking about being a Black Lives Matter supporter and uh, anti-racist, and then we start to talk about how capitalism is at the root of racism and slavery, then immediately the assumption is that I'm anti-capitalist. And I think that it's really great to point out this idea that actually I'm pro-free enterprise and self-determination. But capitalism in and of itself was created as a means to control goods and services and money. And so when you start to do the analysis of that and break down what's inherent in that economic system, there's some great institutional racism that can be really, really deconstructed and pulled apart. And what we have left that's got hope in it is the idea of liberty, self-determination, equal justice under the law, and then, of course, free enterprise, meaning no one's required to work for the state Right? So I'm not a communist or really even a socialist in the most traditional sense of the socialist. And I'm in this whole like n- open territory, which doesn't have a clear definition. Do you have a daily practice that reminds you of who you are and what you're working to eradicate? Well, I connect with my body every morning through different types of practice. I mean, in particular with racism, like a daily practice where it's like bringing to the immediate consciousness racism exists. I'm a part of our society. So, no, I don't actually have that. What I have is I have a social group that I belong to that becomes... A reminder every in the moments that I'm interacting with them. So, in a sense, m- my practice is staying engaged with a community that has at its core this idea of doing the work as people who identify as white, of uh, breaking down racism within our sphere of influence as individuals, and then the promise of that expanding to a level of societal and then ultimately global. And you meet with them pretty regularly. Yeah, especially when we get into when the course is happening. But then, you know, one of the byproducts of showing up in social media with 
more compassion and awareness around my white privilege and the impacts of institutional racism is that I'm able to begin to form bonds with people of color because I'm able to communicate with them in ways that don't transmit my privilege and don't cause them to have to engage in the labor of confronting my privilege, uh, my unconscious privilege. And I'm still not free, but I'm willing to be accountable and restore integrity whenever I encounter it. And oftentimes I'll do that without prompting when I know. But then when I'm actually... Like one of the privileges I have is I have a relationship with people of color who have taken the labor to educate people of white who identify as white in how to do this work. So there is the teacher whom I serve as a protector under. There's her staff of teachers that are people of color. And my willingness to, to engage with them and their willingness to then respond to me with the truth, that's like a tremendous gift. And so being in that field gives me a heightened state of awareness of how to correct and how to restore integrity whenever I'm out. And that's a practice, staying in community with people that are doing this work. What do you think is the importance to the piece of information that George Washington's false teeth probably were made in part by the teeth of slaves? What's the importance of that? Well, there's two levels. The first one is to call out what is the whitewash of history, the hidden nature of how people don't want to talk about the truth of something in order to escape the sense of responsibility, to be able to bypass the discomfort of what that means about someone whom we admire as the father of our country. The other benefit of it is that when you humanize someone like that, at that level, you begin to ground the reality of the human experience in the real, uh, the, the idea that we're all carrying shadow and light. We're all multidimensional in that sense. So for me, I'm able to still hold a kind of gratitude and reverence for the sacrifices that George Washington made and the impact that he had on the idea of liberty and free enterprise. At the same time, a recognition of his failures to recognize the inhumanity of what he was doing with people that he kept as slaves. So it's samsara. It's joy and sorrow at the same time. It's this paradox of humanity. And so the, the benefit of having that knowledge is to recognize the illusion of history and the whitewashing of history. And the invitation there is to then move beyond that from a place of pure regret and sadness and being locked down in our guilt and the sense of futility into a recognition of, of his human potential beyond that. I have the intellectual privilege of doing that, right? 
it wouldn't be so easy for me to experience the 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 lighter side of his contribution if you know his my great 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 grandfather was the person who had his teeth in George Washington's mouth it would be a different experience for me the level of um levity or admiration that I could have for him would be impacted by that it's a damn fucking shame that we don't know that stuff in, and that we're not taught that in school and it creates a lot of problematic conversations for people right like we've, we're told it's you know he, they're made of wood right and I bet a bunch of people watching this are going like what? Like, this is the first time they've heard this information. Diving into discovering the legacy of institutionalized and socialized racism in our country has this really wicked, sadistic sense of freedom that comes from it. Because the further you get into it and the more tolerance you have for the painful discomfort of awakening to the truth of what's going on or what has been going on, you actually get more free from the illusion, but it doesn't make you happier necessarily or give you more a sense of comfort. So being willing to sit with that discomfort and then take steps to have some kind of impact connects me with the reverence I have for the heroic acts of people. So there's all kinds of heroic acts. The Buffalo soldiers who fought for the freedom of slaves, right? I mean, the the men and women uh, of uh, indigenous descent who helped Lewis and Clark find out what the West was like. That's heroic. They took people who were basically way softer than them and helped them. Now, they were oppressed. They were The people who helped Lewis and Clark were treated very poorly. And then they participated in the disintegration of their own cultural heritage inadvertently. But they had a grace about them as they assisted human beings discovering something about the world and, and discovering the land and the gift of the land. So in every of these things that come up is there's this full spectrum of shadow and light of um, the paradox of the human being being so potentially dark and full of suffering and being able to impact people with suffering and then also their possible redemption and I I don't like to live in darkness about humans I like to remember that there's more to it than that. Do you have any experience or story that you haven't found the light of it? You haven't found the forgiveness of it? And I'm asking about a particular, not an overall... My mind is such a tricky coyote. Like as soon as I raise one up, I start to you know, like parse, parse out the thing. Well, I that can might tell be. you one that's for me. Sure. In this book I read, uh, in the introduction, the person, the author, quoted a news article 
of a black woman being lynched and she was pregnant and there's a photo and they cut open her stomach you know, in her womb and the baby spills out is all part of this process and you see a picture and there's people smiling as you said earlier, you know, watching the lynching and laughing I cannot find any light or hope in that story mm-hmm. I have faith there's a way but for the life of me and I read that probably 20 years ago mm-hmm. and still So what I'm experiencing right now for myself is this idea of, you know, my own capacity continue to bypass and to continue to not have access to the kinds of things that are right in front of me. And um, how convenient the story is of the work I'm doing to try to break that down in myself. You know, I've got a lot of external things that have been said in this conversation that are like, this is what I'm doing and this is how I... I do it and this is the benefit and I'm excited about it and I'm powerless at a certain level to to continue to break down my own in, inability to see beyond myself. And that's why beginner's mind is so important, right? To continually just come back to the center and recognize our blind spots. It would be a super futile exercise for me to intellectually, philosophically try to render some kind of light out of the story you told me. But I can feel part of me, this like thing in me that like wants to pull from everything this idea that there's a, this hope and that the, the humanity has this upside to it, right? Um, and I, don't, I really don't know why, but... I, I sort of, I'm addicted to this idea of calling myself out, of outing myself around stuff like that, because what I've noticed about that is the more I do that, the more I get out of it, I get freer and freer, even in micro ways. And then people around me get more permission to do it themselves. If I'm hearing you correctly, that feeling you have of that, you feel that force in you, like wanting to, is for me, that's my shadow. That's my demon. That is that element of me that wants to be right mm-hmm. in a situation that isn't right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to be a blissnity. And yet, in the story of the fool, the bliss ninny, in, in that story, ignorance is bliss. It's like it's it's as though that individual has um, ascended, has surpassed the physical realm, and the physical realm is no longer a part of that being's nature. Well, you can't really escape the physical plane, even when you think of if you're a bliss ninny. It's like we don't like. Let's take the tarot deck, like the the fool. Mm-hmm. He's stepping off a cliff. Like we don't see what happens next. Mm-hmm. He could fly. It might only be like we can't see that it's only there's a lake under there, and he just dives in and he's happy go lucky. Or he could be like falling down on some poor climber and ends up killing them. Like 
there, there's so many levels to that. And but in the scenario you're talking about, death is a negative. If we have death as an experience, not an ending, not a beginning, just another experience, and there isn't so much proactivity, is that how you pronounce that word? To, there isn't proclivity. so proclivity to stay alive. Well, by that measure, we can find light in the fact that the baby who's been ripped from its mother's womb that's born black returns right away into the death cycle for the possibility of not being born black. Intellectually. Right. In the big picture of the divine, yes, there there is a healiness. But that's an intellectual thought. In my body, there's just nothing good there. There's nothing good. Right. And part of what I remind myself daily is that individual that they don't have the choice of stepping out into the world. And you know what? I don't want to deal with racism today. I don't want to deal with the fear of my child being shot or call the name, or, you know, they don't have, whether they're feeling good, whether they're feeling bad, it's not a choice. And every day I remind myself that I have privilege in having that choice. really glad you're doing these classes yeah and I think that who you are and the responsibility that the person who created the class and her own teachers have given you reflects the work you're doing they wouldn't entrust you with that responsibility if they didn't believe you are really doing the work would you trust me to clean your house if you didn't think I could really clean your house if you thought I was going to walk in there with mud and sand it around yeah no you wouldn't you might give me a day or two well you asked me would I trust you yeah (laughs) good point that's very kind well I think the point you're really the question you're really asking me is what what do we do with trust like how important is trust in the process of dismantling racism because no, of no. No? no okay i'm not even asking you a question what i'm saying is in the weight of this heaviness of awareness of what is you can also acknowledge the reality of your work and that reality is shown by what you've been entrusted with and that's the hope in the midst of dank darkness 
Yeah. It's in some ways, it's a fool's errand. When you look at the vast challenge that goes along with dismantling racism yeah. in the in the global spectrum. Yeah. So being willing to be a fool in that respect has me, you know, showing up ready to to fail if I fail and pers- persevere when I persevere. And to the extent that I take any kind of identity or egoic um accolades or badge then i'm immediately out of integrity with the process right there's it's a paradox because you have to be willing to enter into the sphere of taking on the labor and being as having as much skillful means as you can in that arena and then no matter what always falling short of what needs to be done okay this is going back a little bit to what you said I believe that just as the mantle of guilt can circumvent and short-circuit the process of healing, not acknowledging the, the positive of the responsibility that you are doing, and that... And, your actual work is also circumventing the healing and and the ego part is when that part of us that wants to be better than that wants to be higher than and thinking oh I'm better than X because I have well, this laundry list so it's staying engaged with the work and the acknowledgement of what is can empower that. It's kind of like I could sit here and berate you for you thinking, oh, you're better than me. You think you're better than me because you don't. Right? And you can hear that and not let it impact your passion for being engaged in this process of healing racism. Because there are facts. And the fact is, someone you highly respect and is very knowledgeable about racism and is very gifted in teaching Whitey what's going on has entrusted you to be a part of this very important process in her life. Yeah, it's true. And it's like her survival, the survival of the people of color and indigenous populations depends on us being willing because the alternative is the basically full-on disintegration and war and that's my hope is ultimately we will realize we are human and you know that's kind of the bliss many um quote you know (laughs) meme but ultimately i think like your uncle said to you many years ago, you know, ultimately humans are good. And as you said, he's not, you know, like, so I have faith in a life that race, gender, all this chaos of hierarchy 
is no longer a part of the way our life is. Yeah. The amount of human potential that gets consumed is really tragic. Yeah. And we're so generative. There's so many amazing things. Like, it's just the possibilities are, are literally infinite. And we have to clear out the things that keep us from breathing into our full potential, living into, rising into what we're capable of. And sometimes that's not about me doing me so much as it is about me helping others reach their full potential. And to me, that's sort of the ultimate piece about anti-racism is this like, as long as someone's not free, I'm not free. And we can't actually go where we could go in freedom and abundance. We're naturally in abundance, but there's people who have attachments to control mechanisms and, and social dogmas that limit and create this idea of lack. And then they use that as a way to pull more for themselves, either consciously or unconsciously. And it's not the truth of the universe that I have come to know. It's that, you know, like I just think back on these people that came from Europe seeking refuge from religious persecution who stumble upon millions of years of history of indigenous people living in harmony with the planet. And that's a bit of a romanticized view, right? But at the same time, what would society look like if we'd been able to make more use of that and lean into that instead of capitalizing on it? And another piece of history which people forget is that the whole structural context of our democracy is based on the Iroquois and the Five Nations that exemplified that in their the way they ran things, the way they came together at council around the fire and made decisions together. And it's to European history's credit that they tried to build a model based on that and that's kind of what I, I put my hope in, in terms of the big picture. This idea that we can once again arrive at this place of unity and working things out in a way that has freedom and benefit for all. And there's joy in that. The, you know, uh, the rainbow children playing together. That's a possibility. It's a real possibility. It's an idealized dream right now that has moments where it appears and it happens in real time. And then it, it fades away again under, you know, the influence of oppressive competition forces. 
I'm good. You're good? I'm better when I'm bad. Ah!